Joshua chapter 24, we're going to read together the first 13 verses as we come to consider the word of God today. Joshua chapter 24, the scripture says, And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and called for the elders of Israel, and for their heads, and for their judges, and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood, and led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his seed, and gave him Isaac. And I gave unto Isaac Jacob and Esau. And I gave unto Esau Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. I sent Moses also and Aaron and I plagued Egypt according to that which I did among them, and afterward I brought you out. And I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and ye came unto the sea. And the Egyptians pursued after your fathers with chariots and horsemen unto the Red Sea. And when they cried unto the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and brought the sea upon them, and covered them. And your eyes have seen what I have done in Egypt, and ye dwelt in the wilderness a long season. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, which dwelt on the other side, Jordan, and they fought with you. And I gave them into your hand, that ye might possess their land, and I destroyed them before, from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and warred against Israel, and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not hearken unto Balaam. Therefore he blessed you still. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over Jordan. And came in unto Jericho. And the men of Jericho fought against you. The Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites. And the Girgashites. The Hittites and the Jebusites. And I delivered them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drave them out from before you, even the two kings of the Amorites, but not with thy sword, nor with thy bow. And I have given you a land for which ye did not labor, and cities which ye built not, and ye dwell in them of the vineyards and olive yards which ye planted not do ye eat. Amen. May God bless his word to our hearts for Jesus' sake. This morning we're going to consider the 13th verse, particularly there where the Lord is telling the Israelites that it was not by the labor of their hand, nor by their sword, nor by their bow, that they actually possessed the land. But he actually gave it to them by the power of his hand. And I want us to think then on the subject uh, an inheritance not worked for. An inheritance not worked for. But before we go any further, let's just ask the Lord to meet with us for Jesus' sake. 
Father in heaven, now we would pray that you will bless the word of God. We pray that you will let it be that which is used of the spirit to draw our hearts to thy feet, to teach us, to instruct us, to help us to understand the things that are true of our Savior, true of ourselves, and true of what you would have us to do and be. Oh God, we ask for a moving of the Spirit of God this morning amongst us, we pray. All in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen. It is one of the Lord's plainest pictures in Scripture that the deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt and the entrance into the promised land speak of the nature of God's redemption of his people from sin and death. It is a picture. It is a likeness. It is a lesson. It is something that you can look at and understand the nature of what God does for us as he worked in this way in an outward sense among the people of Israel. The reference to Israel's deliverance Uh, is spoken of throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the Pentateuch. It is also addressed numerous times in the Psalms. The the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel speak of it as well. When you go to the New Testament, you read that it was the actual subject of of the Sermon of Stephen in the book of Acts when he was called to question for his faith in the Lord Jesus. It was also referred to by Paul in the book of Hebrews. The deliverance of the people of God from the land of Egypt, a picture of the Lord's redemption, showing forth that the mighty arm of God to deliver from the enemy is uh, a song, if you will, for the people of God to recount and to remember as they think upon what the Lord has done for them. Now, I will say this, the point that we make here is so essential for us to grasp that like as the deliverance from Egypt took the mighty hand of God to bring about, We must understand then also, so the salvation and redemption of the heart of any man requires the same hand and the same power of God. There's the point. Your salvation takes the same power that it took for the Lord to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. The great lengths to which the Lord went to protect his people and vanquish their enemies is but a reflection of the great lengths to which the Lord Jesus went to save his people from their sin. So I say it is plain that the ways in which the Lord worked to supply for Israel and to bring the Israelites out from under the hand of their enemies um, is nothing short of spectacular. And we would notice it and we are amazed at what the Lord did. But we need to stop and think, perhaps that is but a reflection. What was a greater work than that was that the Lord could save you from your sin. And this morning I say it's hardly hardly possible for us to imagine the power of God that was seen over and again by Israel and their, as their feet took step after step toward the inheritance in the land of Canaan. But this morning I want it to be very clear that this monumental occurrence that the Lord refers to in Joshua chapter 24 is meant to teach us in no uncertain terms that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. All that has to do with the redemption of the people of God is the result of the Lord's work, the Lord's power, and the Lord's provision. 
just as it is plain that Israel did not bring herself out of Egypt, nor did she make her way through the wilderness by her own wit and wisdom. She also did not come into the land of her inheritance by her own stealth and labor. From start to finish, the work of bringing the people into the land and defeating the enemies within was the work of God. Israel's place was to follow and obey in faith. To follow and obey in faith. Now if we simply allow the picture to make the greater point plain, it will prove to be a great proof that salvation comes through the power of Christ and that we must be those who are given to seeking of his grace and mercy. So I want us to think on this this morning. I simply want us to understand what the Lord is using here as a picture but something that explains to us very simply, very simply, the nature of God's redemption. So our subject is this. The scripture presents the Lord's clear statement that the hand of any man is too weak I underscore this. The hand of any man is too weak to bring him into the promised land of God's redemption. There's the point. No man is sufficient to do it. The Lord says you weren't sufficient to go into the land of Canaan by yourself. You're not sufficient to go into the promised land of God's redemption by yourself. So I want us to consider the picture of the conquest that the Lord relates here and just relate it to the matter of our receiving deliverance from sin got a couple of points I want to present to you, the first of which is this. The one reason why it took the Lord's power to bring the people into the land of inheritance was, first, the enemy was too many. The enemy was too many. Whether it was the Egyptians that pursued, or the Canaanites in the land, all the enemies that Israel faced were too great for them. In fact, the Lord mentions the coming of the Egyptians after Israel in verses 6 and 7. And he says there that the Egyptians pursued, and because they pursued, it caused Israel to cry out. Well, why cry out? What's the significance of that statement? Israel cried out to the Lord when they saw the Egyptians coming. Well, the the point is this. There was no hope of beating the Egyptians in battle. They were not going to be able to win. They were being set to be destroyed. Israel realized that they were done for if the Lord did not deliver them. Oh, can you not understand? Can you not see? That's the state of any man. Done for. Further, perhaps you remember this. The report of the spies that went into the land that was filled with the Canaanites. They came back saying that they were terrible enemies. They had iron chariots. They had walled cities. We can't overcome them. That was, not a, that was not a bad assessment. They were not being dishonest. They were not telling that which is untrue. That was the truth. In fact, in Joshua chapter 11, it says of the northern kings, these kings banded together they assembled themselves together and in verse 4 of chapter 11 it says and they went out meaning the kings and their hosts they and all their hosts with them much people even as the sand that is upon the seashore in multitude with horses and chariots very many 
the statement was the enemies that Israel faced were without number. They were without number. And the terrible desire of these enemies was to destroy Israel entirely. And they would have too. They certainly would have as well. Had not the Lord come between the enemy and his people. Now my point is this. That simple picture is like you and your sin. Let me ask you a question. I know you don't want to have this answer, but I don't think you could answer it. Could you possibly number your sins against God? I suggest to you that if you try to do so, you'd come up with a picture much of what we're talking about here. An enemy without number, as the sand of the sea, the amount of infractions and offenses and iniquities and transgressions of what you have done against God, you cannot number. And that is an enemy, I say, that is far, far greater than you. And these enemies, our sins, I want you to understand, like these people that Israel was facing, your sins are vicious. You say, oh, it's not that. No, 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 no. Sin brings death. Not just physical death, but everlasting death. Sin is vicious in its desire to destroy. David makes a statement in Psalm 38, for mine iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. There's this point. Your enemy, what you face, they're too many. They're too many. You won't win the battle. When it comes to you having to deal with your sin, you will not win the battle. Period. And again, the end of sin and destruction. It is the great host that will follow and will not turn back until the soul is destroyed. And quite frankly, I know that there are some out there that will say, well, you can turn all things around. Just turn your life around. Muster up some righteousness. I'm telling you, Israel could not have mustered enough of an army at any point in their existence to defeat the host of the enemies that they faced. And furthermore, you cannot muster enough righteousness in yourself to turn away the sin that's coming against you in judgment. You can't do it. I can, can you prove that? Yes, I can. Scripture says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and I'm sure most of you have this memorized, all have sinned and come short. That means simply, when the host of your sins comes to you in judgment to condemn you, to, as it were, destroy you. You cannot muster enough against that to withstand your sins. To, you know, I think maybe I've done more righteousness. than No, you cannot do more righteousness. Your sins are always greater than your righteousnesses are. You'll never win that battle. The enemy is too great. God is presenting this picture to help the people of God understand their desperate need of his intervention because that which is against you is too great.
you know, I could also add another thought at this point, and that is this, that the adversities of the daily needs of the Israelites, even after they escaped from Egypt, were also too great for them to supply. Not only are your enemies that you find as your sins, but all the needs that you have of heart and life, you're not adequate for that either. We're not able to survive in our walk toward home without the abundant grace and goodness of God. The enemy was too many. Second point I think the Lord is presenting to us very plainly here is this. The fight was too great. The fight was too great. Let me ask you a question. What did it take for Israel to leave Egypt, come through the wilderness, enter into the land, and then possess the land which was flowing with milk and honey, and to eat of crops that they didn't plant, and from vineyards that they had not put there. What did it take? This is not a little point. What did it take for them to come to this place? Well, the Lord mentions two events in our reading that we have. He says, first, it took the parting of a sea. It took the parting of a sea. You'd never have been here, Israel. You'd never be where you are unless the sea was parted. And then he also refers to the collapsing of the walls of Jericho. How are you going to take Jericho? One of the strongest cities of the land. You have a small army, which, by the way, has been limited in their experience. This is not a well-tested, well-armed army. How are you going to take Jericho with these massive walls? The Lord uses those two things as questions. Well, you could put in a, a few others. We could suggest this. What about the plagues of Egypt? It took the plagues of Egypt to bring Israel out. It took darkness to stand between the Egyptians and Israel as they crossed through that sea. It, it took the drying of the Jordan so that the People of Israel could go through into the place where they would even face Jericho. One thing that was also striking me as I was reading through Joshua is the strategic stupidity that came over the kings of the land. You know, when the kings gathered themselves to fight with Israel... It made it so much more convenient for Israel. They didn't have to chase each king down individually. They'd gather them all. They'd get them rid of them all at once. Boy, that's a great strategy. Not. But that was done. It took that kind of divine intervention to help Israel because everything they faced was too great for them. And these are just examples. But let me ask a question here. Let's just put it in another terms. You know where I'm going with this. What does it take for a soul to be saved from sin? Well, we are told that it takes being wakened from the dead spiritually. Now, what man is going to wake himself up spiritually? Well, it takes a miracle of the Spirit of God, does it not? It takes full repentance of heart. What man is going to repent with all his heart unless the Spirit of God does a work within him? It takes, now think of this, it takes the removal of sin from the sight of an all-seeing God. Think about that. 
Now, I asked you a question a moment ago. How, can, can, you imagine, can you begin to imagine how many sins you have committed? You say, no, that, you are right, brother. You are right. They are like the sand of the sea. How are you going to have all that sin removed from you so that in the sight of God, who sees all, knows all, remembers all, these sins are gone to the point where you appear to be completely and totally righteous in his sight? How are you going to do that? I suggest to you that that battle, that that task, that work is much greater than you'll ever be able to begin. But further than that, you've been made righteous if you're trusting Christ. Changing the righteousness, if you want to put that in quotes, of a vile sinner into a righteousness that is perfect in the sight of God. In fact, the very righteousness of Christ. And beyond that, you have been placed in union with the Lord Jesus. Now, again, I just take a step back and say, which one of these things can you do? How can you do these things? Again, it's the same question about how Israel could possibly bring herself into the land of promise. The point of it is, you, she couldn't. There was no way that she herself into the land of promise. There was astounding, miraculous works of the hand of God that had to be done to bring her home. There's my point. It takes the hand of God to bring any sinner home. Miraculous thing. And I say to you this morning that if you're trusting the Lord Jesus, the Lord did do a work as astounding for you as the parting of the Red Sea. I wish I could have seen it. Well, think about your own time when the Lord saved you. You've already seen the parting of the Red Sea. I wish I could see the walls of Jericho. Well, you know, the Lord has perhaps given you a victory over a sin. You just have, you've seen the power of God in a greater sense than what it took to take the walls of Jericho and lay them flat. My point is only the Lord can win the conquest over sin. Only Christ can do all that is needed by bringing us to a place where sin cannot touch us. Perhaps we understand what the Lord Jesus says now when he says, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I can't come. The battle is too great. I will point out something else about the limitations of the Israelites. And I think the Lord makes it very plain that this too was in view. And that is this. The conquest was too unclear. The conquest was too unclear. My, my question is this. Did Israel have any idea how she was going to escape Pharaoh's army? Here comes Pharaoh with the chariots, the horsemen. Israel's trapped beside the sea. Did she have any idea how she was going to be delivered from that? Did she have any idea of what it would take? Let me ask this. Did Israel know how they were going to enter into the city of Jericho? We're going to walk around it seven times. Okay, now, what military strategy would any general suggest that, that that's going to have its effect and, and produce its... Well, nobody would have suggested that. Nobody would have suggested that the sea would open. Did Israel have any idea how they were going to defeat the combined armies of the Canaanitish kings? Again, they had no idea. And I say this suggests a truth 
that when it comes to any natural man, now I mean a man before he is found by the grace of God, when it comes to any natural man of understanding God's way of salvation, he can't. Here's my point. You can look around at the religions of the world and you can see men trying to make sense out of God's ways of salvation. And he's always wrong. Always wrong. Well, let's do this thing. Let's erect this booth. Let's sit on top of this pole. Let's create this monastery. Let's do these set of uh, ritualistic things. Man always comes up with the wrong thing. He He does not understand what it takes to bring a soul to heaven. He has all kinds of imaginations. And I will suggest to you just but one incident that I think sums up what natural man faces. And that's, perhaps you remember in Acts chapter 16, there was an earthquake and the doors of the prison were open and Paul and Silas were sitting there and a man comes bursting in and falls down before them. In fact, it was the jailer himself. And he says what? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? There is the honest confession of any natural man. And that is, I don't know how to be saved. I don't know how to get rid of my sin. I don't know how to conquer the enemy. Unless God shows me, unless I am told the truth of the gospel, unless the light of the gospel shines in my heart and faith comes to me by the Spirit of God, I'll never know, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And again, I always say this, that any man who is truly born again comes to this point. He admits that he is unable by any means to see his way to God. It takes the Lord opening the eyes and the heart to see the one lifted up as Moses was lifted up in the wilderness, or Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Again, here's the, the crux of why the Lord says In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. The Lord's point is this. He leads us to life. He leads us to life because man left to himself will never understand how to get there. The conquest and all that has to do with it is too unclear to the fallen mind. My fourth thought. The means were too demanding. The means were too demanding. How were the people of God going to come into the land? Well, all the wonders that Israel saw are but a testimony to the extraordinary means that were required. To save the people of God. For example. Give you an example. Extraordinary means. It says in Joshua chapter 10 verse 11. Here is Joshua and his army fighting. It says. And it came to pass as they fled before Israel. And were in the going down to Beth Horon. That the Lord cast down great stones from heaven. Upon them unto Azekah. And they died. And they were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. You know what that simply says? Israel could not 
have enough swords being used that day to slay all the enemy that had to be slain. They didn't have enough resource. They didn't have the means. They didn't have the power. Even if they held two swords, one in each hand, and one at it that way, they didn't have enough swords to do what had to be done. The Lord says, I will fight this battle. I will cast down hailstones on your enemy. In fact, then the testimony is, Israel did their part, but the battle was the Lord's. The means of winning the battle was the Lord's. It took stones from heaven. It took the sun standing still for a whole day. Well, my point is this. You cannot defeat or put away sin by anything that you or any other man can do. It requires the power of God. Our enemies need to be dealt with by the hand of God. And so my point again is this. Jesus Christ is the only one able to bear away the sin of the world. You cannot fight hard enough to do what needs to be done to rid yourself from your sin. You do not have this resource. You do not have enough swords, so to speak. In fact, the one you have lies in the hand that's dead. Huh? Yes, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, what, what good is a sword going to be in a dead man's hand? Well, when you're made alive in Jesus Christ, even then you don't have enough. You must look to the Lord to do what you cannot. You are to trust in his work for you at Calvary. He has done the battle. He has won the battle. He has taken on our enemy 100% of all that could be poured out by our enemy against us has been poured out against us. And the Lord Jesus won it all. The captain of our salvation is successful. Jesus never fails. Well, my last thought is this. The result was too far beyond reach. The result was too far beyond reach. You know, it was the response of all but two of the spies that entered into the land at the first that the taking of the land was too great. And again, I underscore, this was not an incorrect assessment. In their own strength, Israel would never have taken the land. The whole matter was beyond them. Again, it would require help and provision of God at every turn that they received. What they were needing or what they were going to be receiving was beyond their reach. It was way beyond something that they could ever possibly hope for in themselves. Psalm 24 poses a question and then it gives the answer. And I'd like us to consider that. Psalm 24, verse 3 says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Now there is a wonderful thing to contemplate. Standing in the presence of God, being in the holy place of God, viewing him in all his glory, all his love, all his majesty. Who's going to come and stand in that place? Well, the psalmist then says in verse 4, He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Well, my question is, of whom does that speak? 
My answer to you is it certainly does not refer to any of us. But it does say that that must be the character, so to speak, of the man who will see God. There are no exceptions. Unless that is true of you, you will not see God. Without this being true, a man will in no wise enter into the presence of God. Wow. Now there is something that's that I could ever reach for. I can never get myself to that place. So what's the point? It is this. You must have the Lord Jesus make you to be acceptable in the sight of God. Or being saved from sin is too far beyond your reach. You cannot labor your way into salvation. It's beyond your reach. It's beyond something you'll, you'll accomplish. No man, no matter how he was, how good he was, no matter if he is declared by somebody to be a saint or not, if he's trying to get there by his own labors, he will fail. He will not reach that point. You must be made completely righteous. You must be made completely pure. You must be made to be one who is completely without condemnation in the sight of God. There is no exceptions to this. Unless that's true of you, destruction will find you. So how does that change then? How do we reach that place? Israel reached the promised land. Something happened, yes. There was a transformation. There was the power of God Roman, excuse me, Second Corinthians 5 and 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us. Oh, now think this. The Lord Jesus was made to be everything that I was in the sight of God that disqualifies me from even the thought of God toward me. He was made all that, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Do you understand that that's the parallel to Psalm 24? That's the man that hath clean hands and the pure heart, that hath not sworn a soul into vanity, nor sworn to sleep peacefully. He shall receive the blessing of the Lord. There it is. I am made to be righteous because the Lord Jesus, his righteousness is imputed to me as my sins are imputed to him. So I say, just as Israel could not win a battle without the Lord's intervention, you cannot be saved without the Lord's Jesus winning the battle. So you say, what's the point? The point is this. The point is this. Why does God even recount this in the Scripture? Why does the Lord even give us this picture? Why, does it, why do we have this lesson so, being, so plainly being presented to us? What's the word to us? Simply this. You're to come to Him. You come to him. You seek the face of your God. You trust in Christ. You come to the Lord Jesus. And him that cometh unto me, I will not cast out in no wise. Come to the Lord Jesus. Put your trust in him. Repudiate your own labors. Say, Lord, I, it, I, I, I can't do it. Yes, repudiate that. And trust in Christ. So I say very plainly that God gives this picture in Joshua 24 as a call. A call to us all. A call to believe on the gospel. The gospel that presents him as the one who saves his people. 
who delivers them from their sin, who brings them into the place of covenant promise, who brings to them every grace, who allows them the hope of glory. We are to trust our God. We are to look to our God, the person of Jesus Christ. Well, may the Lord allow us to be those that hear truly and see this to be true for us. Let's all pray. Father in heaven, now I would pray that you will allow this word, this picture, to do what you intended it for it to do, and that is to preach to us, to draw us, to cause us to be those who more firmly rest in what Christ has done. Lord, I pray that you'll seal this word to the hearts of those that have heard by the Spirit of God. Continue to preach, we pray. Do thy work. O God, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.